Section 13 of Woman and the Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey. Woman and the Republic by Helen Johnson. Section 13. Chapter 7. Woman Suffrage and the Professions. The sixth count in the Declaration of Sentiments reads, He closes against her all the avenues to wealth and distinction, which he considers most honorable to himself. As a teacher of theology, medicine, or law, she is not known. That statement contains another evidence of the untruthfulness of a half-truth. First, it is an unwarrantable assumption, of which no proof is offered, that man had closed against woman any avenue to wealth and distinction, or that he felt toward woman the selfish and monopolizing spirit implied in such accusation. Second, but three of the avenues, all of which he was said to have closed against her, are mentioned. Whatever may be the truth about those three, the no less honorable, although less arduous, avenues to wealth and distinction were as open to her as to him, as educator, author, artist, in painting, music, and sculpture, she could freely attain to the same coveted end. The suffragists did not decry man's monopoly of the honorable and profitable but severe professions of civil engineering, seamanship, mining engineering, lighthouse keeping and inspecting, signal service, military and naval duty, and the like. These, and the drudgery of the world's business and commerce, man was welcome to keep. But most of all, this suffrage indictment contains, as do all the rest, another tacit untruth when it assumes that woman's work has not in the past been as honorable to herself and as profitable to the world as has that of man. By setting up a false standard for achievement, and attempting to make everything conform to it, the suffrage movement has done incalculable harm. It is not progressing to push into an unwanted place merely because it is unwanted, and because you can push in. It is progress to enter it in response both to an inward and an outward need. When the first suffrage convention had adopted the Declaration of Sentiments, Lucretia Mott offered a resolution, which was also adopted, declaring that the speedy success of our cause depends upon the zealous and untiring efforts of men and women for the overthrow of the monopoly of the pulpit, and for the securing to woman an equal participation with men in the various trades, professions, and commerce. The most remarkable thing about this resolution is that it was promulgated by a woman who was at that very time a gifted and eloquent preacher, so that to her, who cared for it so highly, man had not closed that avenue to wealth and distinction. As she had a husband to support her and her children, she was much more free to attain those desirable ends than most of the ministers who were preaching for humanity's sake and the gospels, at salaries ranging from five hundred to two thousand dollars a year, and who had families to support out of their slender pittance. If any woman was in a position to overthrow the monopoly of the pulpit, surely she was. Stately and beautiful of mien, fervent in spirit, eloquent in language, one who had learned the Hebrew and Greek that she might read the scriptures in the original tongues, what did she lack? 
not only was no pulpit of another faith than hers ever open to her, but more than half those of her own form of worship were closed against hearing the inner voice as interpreted by her. In that schism that rent the Society of Friends as no other religious body has ever been rent, she threw in her fortunes, or led others to throw in their fortunes, for she had been preaching nine years when the division occurred, with that portion that placed the inner light above all scripture. When the friends came from the London meeting to testify against the teachings of the schismatics, they besought Lucretia Mott to return to the faith of her childhood, but she resisted from conviction that she was right. Elias Hicks, her leader, had instigated the members of his congregation to refuse to pay their taxes to the government during and following the War of 1812, on the ground that they represented an encroachment of the secular power on Christian liberty, and were used to support war, which was sin. Lucretia Mott preached that no Christian can consistently uphold a government based on the sword or relying on that as an ultimate resort. The country has always suffered from this doctrine. The Tory Quakers of the Revolution called publicly upon friends to withstand and refuse to submit to instructions and ordinances not warranted by that happy constitution under which we have long enjoyed tranquility and peace. Thomas Paine, whose parents were friends, in the crisis says, The common phrase of these people is, Our principles are peace to which it may be replied, and your practices are the reverse. Another striking instance of this disagreement between principle and practice is seen in Lucretia Mott's behavior. From the platform where she demanded the ballot for woman, she proclaimed that all voting was sinful. That bodies of people who so held should continue to enjoy the government's protection of themselves and their property— through the sacrifices made by those who carried on government by giving willingly their money and their strength, is a proof of our wonderful freedom. Elizabeth Fry and most of the English friends would not mention the name of Mrs. Mott. Mrs. Stanton once asked her what she would have done after the Hicksite faction had been voted out of meeting at the World's Conventicle of Friends in London, if the spirit had moved her to speak when the chairman and members had moved that she be silent and she answered, Where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty. This is the liberty of anarchy, and it had its due weight in the suffrage movement. Mrs. Stanton, in the course of a eulogy pronounced at Mrs. Mott's funeral, said, The vagaries of the anti-slavery struggle, in which Lucretia Mott took a leading part, have been coined into law, and the wild fantasies of the abolitionists are now the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the National Constitution. The infidel Hicksite principles that shocked Christendom are now the cornerstones of the liberal religious movement in this country. The vagaries of the anti-slavery struggle are exactly those that were not coined into law. The wild fantasies of the abolitionists were rejected by those whose sober judgment and steady courage made possible the last constitutional amendments. And no truer is it that the infidel Hicksite principles are the cornerstones of any genuine movement of Christian liberality. While the friends mourn that infidelity and Roman Catholicism have made inroads upon their progress in some places, they have steadily advanced in the other direction from that pointed out by Lucretia Mott. Their educated and paid ministry, their first-day schools, their missions, home and foreign, their music, 
and simple but set forms, their reports to London of conversion and profession of faith, and their rapid growth where these things have taken place, all indicate the truth of this. The large meeting at Swarthmore College in the summer of 1896 is another evidence. The proportion of woman preachers to the different denominations is as follows. The Hicksite Quakers, as against the Orthodox, have the most. So have the German Methodists, United Brethren, as against the Orthodox Methodists. The Free Will Baptists, as against the Orthodox Baptists, ordain more woman preachers. The Universalists preceded the Unitarian Church in so doing. The Presbyterian and Congregational Churches, as a body, have taken no steps in that direction. In the Congregational denomination, any separate body of worshippers can ordain whom it sees fit. The Roman Catholic and Episcopal Churches have orders which band women as religious workers and remove them more or less from the ordinary life of the world, but they have taken no steps toward ordaining women for the ministry. We may note that the denominations that have been foremost in building colleges for women and in promoting her general advancement in professions and trades, as well as in social and philanthropic matters, are the ones whose pulpits she has not entered. They are also those by which she is most cordially welcome to speak on all Christian and philanthropic themes. Where her influence is most broadly felt, she has not been taken out of the ordinary life that she was meant to share and to sway. It was from the great denominations that she first crossed the threshold of home to carry home love and principle to foreign countries. In missions, she has served in every conceivable form of public benevolence, side by side with man. Real reforms work from within. If the time comes when the other branches of the Christian Church feel as do a few at present, that the exercise of the ministerial office is consistent and appropriate for woman, one that compels no sacrifice of the life and work that are and must be peculiarly her own, the ballot will not be needed to place her or to keep her in their pulpits. Whatever may be thought of the profession of the ministry for woman, it must certainly be acknowledged that it is the one farthest removed from political thought and action. If any class of women should be glad to be exempted from the vote, it is the woman preachers. In her book, Common Sense, Dr. Jacoby says, The profession of medicine was thrown open to women when, in 1849, the year following the Revolution, and the passage of the Married Woman's Property Rights Bill, New York State, for the first time, at Geneva, conferred a medical diploma on a woman, Elizabeth Blackwell. She was, or rather she became, the sister-in-law of Lucy Stone, and the work of these two women, the one in medicine, the other for equal suffrage, constituted the two necessary halves of one idea. In 1848, when the first suffrage convention was held, twelve women were studying medicine in different parts of the country. Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell was studying that year in Geneva, and when members of the convention wrote to congratulate her, she said in the course of her reply, Much has been said of the oppression that woman suffers. Man is reproached with being unjust, tyrannical, jealous. I do not so read human life. Dr. Blackwell estimates that within 10 years of that time, 300 women had been graduated in medicine. In an address delivered in 1889 before the London Medical School for Women in London, Dr. Blackwell said, I believe that the Department of Medicine in which the great and beneficent influence of women may be specially exerted 
is that of the family physician, not as specialists, but as the trusted guides and wise counselors in all that concerns the physical welfare of the family, they will find their most congenial field of labor. All this was the exact opposite of the spirit that prevailed in the association with which Lucy Stone was identified. She declaimed against man's injustice, and when it was proposed, after the Civil War had taught the power of organization, to have a constitution and bylaws for the suffrage movement, Lucy Stone said that she had felt the thumbscrews and the soul-screws, and did not wish to be placed under them again. Our duty is merely agitation. After a stormy quarrel, she left to form a new association in New England. Elizabeth Blackwell's name is conspicuous for its absence from suffrage annals. In the letter referred to, she wrote, The exclusion and constraint woman suffers is not the result of purposed injury or premeditated insult. It has arisen naturally, without violence, because woman has desired nothing more, has not felt the soul too large for the body. But when woman, with matured strength, with steady purpose, presents her lofty claim, all barriers will give way, and man will welcome, with a thrill of joy, the new birth of his sister spirit. The way in which barriers have fallen and have been removed by men in order that woman may enter the noble profession of medicine is one of the strange stories of this half-century. The Civil War, which taught us so much, helped greatly in this. There were some genuine obstacles in the way of woman's education in medicine, and that they were genuine is proved by the fact that, as rapidly as arrangements can be made so that woman can have thorough training by and with her own sex, this is being done. This trend is in opposition to suffrage action. Dr. Clemence Lozier, who was so long at the head of the suffrage association in New York City, was the most persistent urger of mixed clinics, and marched into them at Bellevue, at the head of her classes, defying the delicate instincts of both men and women. The struggle of the new school, which was really as old as Hippocrates, who said four hundred years before Christ that some remedies acted by the rule of contraries and some by the rule of similarity, was long and hard compared with that of the entrance of woman upon the practice of medicine, although the latter involved sex questions and the former only forms, and professional prejudice did not die with woman's adoption of it. Dr. Jacoby says, We are perfectly well aware that industrial and professional competition are entirely different matters from popular sovereignty. But when we find the same instincts aroused, the same opposition excited, the same arguments advanced, and the same determination manifested by trades unions to exclude women from trades, by learned societies to exclude them from professions, by universities to exclude them from learning, and by voters to exclude them from the polls, we cannot avoid asking whether the difference in the cases is not balanced by the identity in the mental attitude of the opponents. The best trades unions have admitted women to their protective and wage associations, or better still, have helped them to form their own. The worst trades unions, the socialistic and anarchistic, have claimed for them the right to vote. The learned societies are admitting them professionally as fast as they make themselves worthy. The men who hold out against their admission to men's universities are precisely the class of men who have been most active in assisting to found for them equal colleges of their own, and they are also the men who are most strenuous against their admission to the polls. In medicine, while coeducation is deemed better than ignorance, the tendency is to separate the sexes in study as fast as facilities can be made equal. 
The opponents of women's progress and those of women's suffrage are of opposite classes, and their mental attitudes are entirely different. How much harm the struggle for popular sovereignty for women has done in hindering the progress of industrial and professional competition can be judged somewhat by the success of the latter and the failure of the former in the highest fields. It is a significant fact that women do not avail themselves of opportunities open to them in the professions to the extent that it has been claimed they would. The medical examination advertised in January 1896 by the New York State Civil Service Commission for Women Candidates failed for lack of applicants, although the salaries of women in the state hospitals range from $1,000 to $1,500 a year. The entrance of women upon the legal profession raised constitutional questions as to the enactment of law, and so here, as in the matter of the school suffrage, we see how carefully republicanism guarded the post at which must stand the sentinels of liberty. If it might involve law enforcement, women could not practice law or vote on the school question. But the Supreme Court of the United States decided that the practicing of any profession violates no law of the federal constitution. The study of law must prove of great benefit to women, though here again it has already been shown that it is possible that the greatest practical advantage she will derive from entrance into this noble profession will be from acquiring knowledge of her country's laws and how to take care of her own property. Widows and unmarried women have almost invariably placed their moneyed interests in the hands of a man, when it would have been better for all concerned that they should have spent some patient thought on the details of their own affairs. The first woman who was admitted to the bar in this state, New York, was a teacher in the Albany Normal College, and she still remains there, and the women's classes for legal study in New York City have been largely composed of those who had no intention of claiming admittance to the bar. That women can and do enter all these professions with credit to themselves, and that they thus enhance the feeling of pride in their sex, which is a strong impulse with women, is matter for profound congratulation, and is evidence that the animus of the suffrage movement is not that which stirs society. End of section 13. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey.